We'll be reading this morning from the book of Hebrews. If you are in need of a Bible this morning, you can put up your hand and our frontline team will be more than happy to bring one to you. Once again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the word of God. Well, morning. I'm James. If you are new with us, I'll just uh, be teaching from the word today. We're actually going to be talking from Exodus 25 today. So that's where we're going to be camping out. Uh, So Exodus 25, we'll talk a little bit about Exodus 26, 27, but it's we're going to really stay in one chapter today. And so my question today to start off with is, who here has had the Cinnabon experience? Okay. I'm not talking about the taste, okay? So the taste of the Cinnabon, it's, it's a little too sweet sometimes for my, my liking. But I'm talking about when I say the Cinnabon experience is when you walk into a mall and you're accosted by the smell of dough and sugar and this spice, the cinnamon. And if you are, you're there, you're minding your own business. It's un- unmistakable. And if I was to ask you, how do you know it's real? How do you know that this, uh, all you, you can't see it? How, how do you know that this, this thing, this smell, it's real? Well, you say, I just know. I can, my nostrils can sense it. You had a real encounter with cinnamon, okay? And it's not a mental delusion or it's not an emotional projection, but it's the real thing. And what's the effect of that? It, it actually, for most people, it's like you make the beeline to the food court, right? You may, oh, I'm not really going to go there, especially if you start heading down that direction and you find yourself unable to resist and you want more, you want more now. I was just thinking about this week when uh, this kind of experience can be sort of make a, a bit of a correlation with the way people describe sometimes their experience with God. It's like, it's hard to define. It's hard to, to explain how you know it's real when you talk about experiences with God. It's hard to quantify. But you would say, if you've had that, you'd say, this is real. This is a reality in my life. You've begun to breathe or sense God's compelling delight. And so I want to talk to you today about a historical, complex passage of Scripture. It's one that, uh, for many of us, we've been fine as we read through Exodus, and all of a sudden you're hit with, there's a lot of detail here, and I have no idea what it's all about, and do I really need to know all these things? And that's what we find in Exodus 25. We're welcome to that today. 
where it's a section of scripture that speaks into this desire to see, to feel, to experience God's love, God's presence. And it also reveals a conundrum. We ask the question, as God reveals himself to be holy, how does a holy God actually live and dwell amongst a really sinful people? How does God even make this happen? Why, Why would this even exist? And so we want to see this context around the, the passage. We have Moses, he's, he's descending the mountain with God's law. It's been written on tablets of stone. And he's been give, also here given really a set of blueprints. It's a set of blueprints around this idea of building a tent, a portable tent called the tabernacle, where God promises that his presence would specially dwell. He would reside with his people in a special, unique way that all all the other nations of the world, they they don't have this. They have gods, but none of them dwell in this way. And so we want to take some time this morning to, I want to take some time just in chapter 25 to describe some of the things that are in this tabernacle. What, What exists here and what's the significance of them all? Because often we get lost in the details. But this big overarching picture, the one that I want you not to miss, if you, you can miss all the details, but the, the big overarching theme is that this is a message about what God's presence looks like in your life. Sound good? So let's start reading. Verse 25, verse 1, sorry, chapter 25, verse 1. Let's read. The Lord said to Moses, Speak. Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linens, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod, and the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. So, first off, we want to start today, and we want to start with this first little section of scripture. And we want to make a couple comments because I think it sets up some really important things for us to. To, to realize today as a, as a church family. One is that we should see that this text reveals to us that God dwells in the midst of people, that God comes and, and meets with people, but he does it on his own terms. Okay? Don't miss this. That God does his, he meets with people, he dwells in the midst of people, but he does it on his own terms. Let's break that down a bit. One thing is that God, first off, calls people to give towards the building of this, of this tent. This, and then it's not a forced give. It's not something that they, ha- he, he, that they have to do. He calls them to willingly give back to God what he has already given to them. God gave them the plunder of the Egyptians. Remember that? They didn't have a lot of, they didn't have a lot of things. And all of a sudden, when they left Egypt, they were given all of the stuff, gold and and gems and things like that. Where do they get this stuff? It's from the Egyptians. 
And we find here that uh, we see this, we, we don't want to miss this that when we read this, that the instructions for the tabernacle begin with a heart check. God is foremost concerned with the heart and he asks people to worship willingly in their lives, not out of a sense of duty. God's calling people into loving relationship with him, not something they had to do. And then when we are to read, that's what we find here about with all these things. And then it, then it says in verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle. Those words there uh, really hit home to me this week when, when I was thinking about it, Because God gives cle- people clear instructions on why this place should be built. And then that, that God would dwell with them. And then he gives instructions on how they should be. He doesn't leave them in the dark. Does this structure, does the, the instructions make this place holy? No, no. It's not, the, it's not the tent that makes it holy. It's not the perfection of all the, the rooms and the curtains and everything. It's that God's presence engulfs the place. And that his presence makes this place holy. And so these instructions are given by God to people on what he desires. The the tent is going to be built in his terms, in his way, not on the whim of any people. You don't go, "I, I think that curtain should be placed over there. There's not an interior decorator around every corner, right? Saying, this. oh, this doesn't make sense. God says, this is how you should make it. So we don't worship a God of our own imagination. We, but we actually worship God who gives specific revelation in Scripture on how he should be worshipped. He doesn't leave us in places where we just f- figure it out ourselves. And so a good place for us to start today is to really ask the question, how are you approaching God in your life? Is it on your terms? Or is it on God's terms? Do you approach worship on your terms? I, well, I, I'm going to sing this song, but I don't like that song. I'm going to give, but I'm, I don't really like what the direction the church is doing right now, so I'm not going to give that to that. I'm just going to designate it to something else. So I'll just say, ask the question, do we, do we demand or we, are the desires of our hearts line up with the desires that God has revealed for his people in Scripture? Or do we act sometimes, and I'm like this, like a buffet Christian, like choosing. Well, I like that part of Scripture. I'm going to live by that one. All right, but I, oh man, I don't know about that one. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to live by that part of the Scriptures. And so the question I have for you today is who's got the terms in your relationship with God? Because if we're going to talk about presence and we're going to talk about relationship with God, it starts kind of there. Who's really God? And so this is a backdrop for the passage. With much of the rest of this passage, it's going to talk about three sort of pieces or items of furniture. <laughs> we're going to talk about furniture today in, uh, in, uh, in this rest of 25. And the tabernacle has these specific items 
of furniture here. In chapter 26, if we were to read on today, we don't have time to cover it all. So chapter 26 gives you the layout, all the, the, the separation and the zones and the curtains and everything like that. And in, cha- in the beginning of chapter 27, we have the altar that is built that is basically the basis of the sacrificial system that is, that is continued for years on end. But here's what we, want, we know for sure, that the purpose behind the tabernacle is found in verses 8 and 9, that God would dwell with, with his presence among his people. So let's look at three items found in the tabernacle, starting in verse 10. The first one is there. It's the ark and the mercy seat, this ark of the covenant. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to try to explain it a little bit more. So verse 10, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Now two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles inside the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. So first off, what's this thing? For as a kid, I was really confused. I kept looking for a boat. Uh, that uh, it was, uh, it, this ark is actually, it's a box. It's a box. It's, uh, it's no ordinary box. Uh, it's a box that, it, but it's the only piece of furniture inside of this, the Holy of Holies. So if, I just wanted to put it up there because it's really hard sometimes when you read to think about the tabernacle. I want you to see a little bit of a, a, a sketch artist, what it would look like. So they have the outer court, the court of the tabernacle. We have the holy place, which is inside. And then the inside where you see that number one and two, there, this is the place called the holy of holies. And the only thing that's in this place is this ark of the covenant and this mercy seat. We're going to talk about the, that and so this is a, is a place that a high priest entered once per year. And so this box is here inside the Holy of Holies. It's described as the epicenter of God's presence amongst his people. Consider this, God in a box. God puts himself in a box for us. God puts himself in a box in order to dwell with people. And Hebrews 9 further tells us that this box, if we were to, it doesn't give us right here, but it would actually have three things found in this box. The, the testimony that is talked about here, which is the tablets that the, old te- the Ten Commandments were written on. The testimony, the tablets were in there, in that box. There was a, a, a bowl, a pot with manna in it. And Aaron's staff that had budded in a miraculous way. And so these three things were reminders of where the Lord had brought them from. They, each one of them hold, held significance. And so the ark was so holy that God had people build poles so that the ark would be carried without being touched. Okay? 
So they would slide these poles through the rings that we just read about, that the poles would be carried and you didn't touch the box itself. 2 Samuel 6 tells us of a situation, if you want to write that down and read about it today, of a situation where someone does touch the box and it doesn't turn out well for them. And they face consequences if they don't obey completely. And on this box, there's a seat, which serves as a lid. And this seat is actually, it's kind of, confu- kind of a weird picture. It's a, it's a throne. So the seat is the, is the top of the box, and it's this throne. And in, over top of that are these statues of, of cherubim and seraphim. And these cherubim are uh, pictured as overseeing, overlooking. And if you were to read Revelation, you would see how cherubim were, were often the ones who were calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So this picture of angels is here in this box, this mercy seat. This throne serves as the top of the box. And the significance of this box and this mercy seat is described most clearly through a day, which is a day of the year called the Day of Atonement. The high priest would come into the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people. They would enter that Holy of Holies once per year and make sacrifices, actually sprinkle blood, on the mercy seat as asking forgiveness for the sins of the nation. So once a year, that's what they were allowed to do. And once a year, God's presence in holiness would intensely meet with a human mediator, the high priest, in bringing the sacrifices for sins. And at that seat, it's really so amazing. God and sinners come together, but it's not without, it's not unchecked. It's not without conditions. The sprinkling of the blood that is sprinkled over that mercy seat, it reminded the the Israelites yearly that they deserved punishment for their sins, that their sins had a cost. But instead, that seat, that seat would receive the punishment. It would have the blood sprinkled upon it that God's presence would have the punishment symbolically sprinkled and cast upon it. The people of Israel deserved exile amongst their enemies, but instead received God's presence through mercy. And so this ark and this, what we read about here, and the mercy seat, they prove to have far greater significance to the people of Israel. They, they hold great significance for us today. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that, what we're going to see, but we're going to, we're going to jump back to that in a few minutes. So that's the first item. We find this, the ark and the mercy seat. The second item that you're going to find here in this tabernacle is found in verse 23. Read with me. It says this, You shall make a table of acacia wood, Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half tight. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the the table. 
You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And on the table, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and its dishes in, for incense. And its flagons and the bowls which, which you pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold. And you'll, you should set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Okay. So now we have a table. What does that mean, that table? The table is set out. It's set up outside of the Holy of Holies. It's in the holy place. The table is there, uh, is one of the first things that you see. And so that this table is uh, intricate, beautiful, precious, with all of its gold. But don't miss what's on the table. It's not the table itself that is the most important thing. It's that this table holds this bread and if you, we, as we're reading commentaries, there's usually these 12 loaves of bread that represented the, tr- the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 seats at the table that God invites the people to. And it was to hold this bread that symbolized God's provision. It was his table and the bread. The priests are later told to eat that bread and to remind the nation that God was the provider for this nation. And so this is, a, this is a picture of provision. That's item number two. And then the third item that we're going to find in this chapter is this idea, this picture, this golden lampstand. Verse 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, I'm hoping I'm saying that one right. And its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out from the other side of it, three cups made of like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch, and three cups that are made like an almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch, so that there's six branches going out from the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, you, there shall be four cups that are made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and their flowers, and the calyx on one piece of it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be one piece with it. The whole of it shall be one single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, the lamps shall be set up so that they give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. And it shall be made with all these utensils out of the talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown to you on the mountain. Very specific instructions here. This, this golden lampstand. The lampstand is positioned in a place where it sheds the light on the table. See this? That the, the light that is in that room is put upon the table. It shines its light upon it. And it's made of 75 pounds of pure gold. This ain't no Ikea lamp t- shade. <laughs> Out of its base, it flows these branches and uh, these ideas of... Fl- it's very ornate. But it's holding seven lamps designed to light up the room 
It's very symbolic here. The, throughout, throughout Scripture, there's so many places where it speaks of God as light. And so God is light, and light symbolizes God's presence, God's holiness. It just continues along in this theme. And so for the Israelites, they knew that they were called to be a blessing to the nations around them. And, they would, and the language was that they would be a light to the nations. And so in, verse 20, in chapter 25 here, we see these items, the ark and the seat, the table and the bread, and the lampstands that reveal God to people. Reveal God as magnificent and holy. God as provider. God as light. And this is relevant for us today. Even just stopping there. Because if we were to know God, we would begin to then appreciate a little bit more about what God's presence means in our lives. These are things that you and I can just know about God. And study them. But at a heart level, all this talk about dwelling and tabernacles and all of these things are really, at its core, invitations into knowing God and knowing his presence in our lives. As Christians, we can experience this most acutely in the Gospels. You know, when we think about John 1, John chapter 1, you might want to uh, flip over there. We're going to land there for a minute. John chapter 1. We see in this chapter, we see the fulfillment of the tabernacle. It's not just about furniture. It's about a holy God who invites sinners who have been messing up since Eden back into relationship with him. And we know... Now, what God's presence means for us to live with him eternally as we read a chapter like John 1. Read with me John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was, in the, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made, not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here's the verse that is key for us to listen to today. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father. You know, in verse 14, we see this word dwelt. And if you were to read a paraphrase like maybe Eugene Peterson's The Message, you would have seen that it's kind of the language is that God moved into the neighborhood. That's the idea of what, what, what Eugene Peterson says. But in a more literal context, this word dwelt 
is that God, that Jesus took up residence, and you could actually translate it as he tabernacled among us. John Owen, a church theologian, he once wrote, everything that Moses did in erecting the tabernacle and instituting all of its services was intended to testify to the person and glory of Christ, which would be later revealed. And this is, this is, what this means for us today is that when you read a passage and you read about curtains and cloths and altars and details and sticks and gold and all these things, all these details, what we really should be hearing is an invitation from God into presence. Don't get lost in the details. The purpose of curtains in chapter 26 is not to separate us from God. Rather, it's protection. Because you know what happens when unconfessed and unforgiven sin, when someone who comes into the presence of God, if they were to come into the presence of God unatoned for, what would happen to them? They would surely die. That is the holiness of our God. And so these curtains set up protection from the holiness of God so that we would not just enter blindly here. The Israelites would not just enter blindly. And while God had every right to give up on us, instead Jesus comes to dwell with us. He tabernacles amongst us. And we can hear this invitation from the gospel that comes from each of these items from the tabernacle. So I want to walk back through those items one more time. We want, to hear the, we want to hear what the invitation is. And the first invitation is this, that God invites us to experience the end of shame and guilt in his presence. Do any of you here today experience struggle when you come to God because you're struggling with shame and guilt in your life? The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, they invite us to the end of shame and guilt. Because this, through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the work and provision of salvation is actually described like what happens here at the mercy seat. The blood sprinkled on that seat yearly is no longer required. It's no longer required just once a year because Jesus' blood covers all who believe for eternity. All sins. I'm talking about your past your present, your future, all of them are covered by the blood of Jesus when he dies on the cross and you place your faith in him. And so the author of Hebrews, he describes Jesus as a high priest, a priest and a sacrifice. When he says this in in Hebrews 2, he says, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. Let's explain that word real quick. Propitiation is a sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. Okay? We don't often talk about the wrath of God. So God's anger against sin is poured out upon Jesus for the sins of the people. In 1 John 4.10, it says this, this is, In this is his love. That we would not, that we have loved God, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
So in Jesus, you and I have a mediator. He says he's the high priest. And then it's a weird mixed metaphor because your high priest crawls up onto the altar for you. He doesn't just be your high priest. He crawls up and becomes the sacrifice for your sins. And he takes the wrath of God against sin so that we can be forgiven. We can be restored. We can be healed in his presence. We are no longer Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes. This is good news. Amen. We're no longer hiding from God in the bushes while God's walking along saying, where are you? We don't need to be shamed. And this is the message of the gospel, that every sin is capable of being forgiven when you and I surrender our hearts and our lives to this great God. So that's the first invitation, that God invites us to experience the end of shame and guilt in his presence. The second one is that God invites us to be satisfied fully in his presence. In the table and the bread, we can look forward and hear the words of Jesus. You know, Jesus, in John 6, he has just done the miracle of feeding thousands of people. It says 5,000 men, but really the crowd would have been bigger than that of children and women. And so he's fed these thousands of people. And, and in response to this miracle, Jesus later on responds to people around him. And he says this. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. But whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And so God knows that we need and that we're prone to worship anything and anyone that we can remotely uh, find satisfying in our lives. We often try to bring meaning and happiness into our lives through the relationships with people around us, with the things of this world. And, we, and he also knows that there's an emptiness that is so caused by this. This emptiness that comes with pursuing things that were never intended to fulfill your, your greatest needs of your life. And so we have an invitation when we see this table and the bread to come and to be satisfied in God's presence, to know him, to love him, and to be received from him the satisfaction that we really need. We crave. And in, the, in any crowd like this here today, there are some of you who are at different places along your journey, whether you believe and have faith in Christ, maybe you've been following Jesus. There's others that you say, I'm, I'm checking out, I'm a skeptic. But even the believer and the skeptic, all of us can be easily uh, swayed into, into our cravings. We, we want our desires of our lives fulfilled mostly often by false idols. And in the gospel, Jesus is saying that only he can satisfy. Anything else that you're resting your hope in, anything else that you're building your identity upon, you're pursuing for gain, none of this stuff is going to work. And the gospel here is an invitation to die to those things and to be satisfied in a person. And so if Jesus, if God invites us into uh, experience the end of shame he, he, and guilt, he, he invites us into being satisfied in his presence. And lastly today, he, he invites us to join him in inviting others to experience his presence. Because the golden lampstand not only just lit up a room, but it had a it finds its fulfillment in one of the more great I am statements about Jesus. 
Because in John 8, 12, we see Jesus speaking to people and he says to them, he says, he says I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but we, he will have light of life. And so for the Israelites, they were called to be a blessing to people around them. They were called to be the blessing to the nations. So often they forgot about that. They didn't do a very good job. Like us, okay? And in Exodus 27, we read later on about priests who tended these lampstands and they tended them day and night so that the oil would never burn out. These, this light would never go out. And this was a, a reminder that when darkness covered the land, God's lights burned brightly. It reminded people to worship day and night, to not stop. And so even for us, this should remind us today that the Holy Spirit is inside of you and it should cause our hearts to burn for those who do not, have not experienced the light of life. So when we talk about word and deed, when we talk about our mission to being light to the darkness, it's not just some nebulous idea. It's real people who are, you're, you're doing life beside in your workplaces. It matters. People's lives matter. And it's not on you to save them. But it is our responsibility to realize that God is using people to bring the light to the nations. And I'm not blasting you. I'm just saying from my heart to yours, as your pastor, it matters. We are as church. We are called to show God's glory all around us in what we say and equally what we do. This involves sharing the gospel with our lips. You cannot live your life and be silent completely. But it's equally as important that your life and your actions live into that light as well. Because key components of light bearers are this, that the Holy Spirit flows out of us, and we are doing life with God, not for God, not under God, not over God, which we talked about. But we resemble Christ, full of truth, and what? Grace. So Jesus tells us, he says this, you are the light of the world, Matthew 5, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. It gives light to all the house, and in the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they might see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And so the light of the lampstand is to point to God's glory. That's the purpose there. But now, likewise, the light of God's people should point others to the glory of Jesus and that is our mission, the heartbeat of this church, the heartbeat of our, your leadership, that we would be people, gospel people. And so as we close today, if you're weary here, maybe you've come here today and you are just beat down. And I wanted to think about how all different people come to, to services on Sunday mornings sometimes. But I thought about this when I was reading about God's presence. I was thinking about God's presence. That sometimes you're just so weary as you come into a place like this. 
And my heart for you is that to, is to remind you today that you have unhurried access to a father who loves you. You have ability through Christ to come into his presence and you don't have to, it's not tied to one day a year. You don't have to slip in, slip out. You're not bothering him. He's got time for you. And so there's a call, an invitation, an invitation for you to have unhurried communion with God if you would make that time yourself. So would this week be a week where you commit in your heart and say, I'm going to set aside not just time, but I'm going to set aside, try to put away unhurried, distracted time to just be in God's presence. Really important. And you know this, this is a privilege because of the work of your high priest through Jesus. It's a privilege. And, I, and maybe for today, I, this is what I found really hopeful. I was reading Revelation 21 this week. You know, one day we're all going to experience the fullness of God's presence. And it's going to be in a city. When the heavens and the earth come together, there's a city. And it's, it says that you know, all the things that we are distracted with in this life, all the pains and the hurts, one day, all that will be gone. And God's presence, we will have it in our lives. We will worship and live and work without all of the pains of this world. But here's what I read this week, is that God, there won't be, in this city, there won't be any need of a lampstand or a sun. Because God himself will be the light of the city. And would we just be people that just revel in that today? That we have the hope of the world. That God has saved us. That he is our salvation. He is our satisfaction. He is our love. So we pray this today. God, we love you. We pray as this text of scripture is very complex and very detailed. And all these things. And that we would see your heart behind it, that all these details are important, that, you cause, that we need to obey you fully and completely in all these things, but in our lives, that we would also remember that you have a heartbeat of invitation, that we would know you and love you and experience your presence. In a, as a feared God, you are a fearful God, but we also experience you as a loving Father. And so as we think about uh, sharing with others, help us this week to not be shameful, not be held back, but that we would respond in worship now and during the week in showing the light of the world to others. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.